You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. We are in the thick of it. So much has changed since our last episode, which was uh, less than five days ago. And so we're going to catch you up, have a wonderful guest uh, for this episode, and we're going to get ready for Super Tuesday. Leading off, of course, we have to talk about Joe Biden's impressive, in some ways stunning victory in South Carolina on Saturday. Now, in some ways, it wasn't stunning. His campaign has been telling us this whole time, wait till we get to South Carolina. On the other hand, it is really something. It's a lot of pressure to put cast that much of the burden and hope for your campaign on one state and really on one constituency. The fact that the, the idea that Biden was going to not just win the black vote, but, but swamp uh, Bernie and the others with that vote. To deliver on that is, is quite an accomplishment. Now, this is the result of years and years of Biden investing in the state. Obviously, Congressman, as we discussed in the last episode with Clay Middleton, and I think Clay set us up well for uh, what we saw on Saturday, uh, Congressman Clyburn's endorsement does seem to have meant quite a bit. Almost half of voters said that in South Carolina said that his endorsement meant uh, was important to them and influenced their vote. I mean, just to go over these numbers, Joe Biden won with about 48% of the overall vote. Bernie was, I believe, just under 20. No one else crossed the 15% threshold. Biden won the white vote. He won the black vote. He won across education level. He won across ideology. He won conservatives, moderates, somewhat liberals and liberals. Really, the only category where Biden did not win were voters under 30. And I believe that held for both white and black voters, that, that Bernie won black voters under under 30. And even there, it was just by a couple points. So it was it was a real walloping. Now, the religious exit poll, uh, the exit poll questions that related to religion are basically useless. In South Carolina, I don't understand why there aren't better questions. Basically, the only thing that was surveyed was, do you attend religious services and how regularly? There was a breakdown there, and, and Joe Biden won every category there, except for those who never attend uh, religious services, and Bernie won uh, that category. But I would have loved to have seen how Biden did among Catholics in South Carolina would have loved to have seen how he performed among uh, white mainline Protestants and white evangelicals. I mean, I think we can assume that that he, you know, overwhelming majority of black voters in South Carolina are black Protestants, though there are some some black Catholics in the state. Uh, I think we can assume that, that Biden's numbers look similar there, but really would have helped us get a better sense of how Super Tuesday might shake out to 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 get some more robust um, religious exit poll data, and with how prominent religion has been in this campaign, you, you'd think there'd be a bit more 
a bit more awareness. Similarly, you know, no abortion questions on on the exit polls. No, nothing about religious freedom. Would have been nice to have information. Well, all of these assumptions are being made about what policies are attractive to the base of the Democratic Party. Would have been nice to have that backed up or contradicted by polling data. So Biden, Biden did what he needed to do. Like we predicted, he is now within about five. They still need to sort out the delegates, but it looks like he'll be just five delegates behind Bernie heading into Super Tuesday. So it, it was a successful well-earned night for the Biden campaign. Now, this campaign, uh, South Carolina has led two candidates, at least at the time of this recording, to announce that they'll be dropping out. The first is Tom Steyer, and the the second is Pete Buttigieg. And, you know, we'll, we'll have quite a bit to say about uh, Pete. But, but first, I just, I just want to pull back and just highlight a couple things about this race that we've talked about on on the show before. We are now nearing a primary that is between Bernie and Biden, and people are having a very difficult time understanding this. And I, I would just want—I would just like to bring up again the argument I made earlier in, in this in this podcast, which is that the way this primary is playing out shows the way authenticity and how voters judge authenticity has changed. Voters are sick of being manipulated. They are sick of being lied to. And they understand. Sometimes I, I think they assume calculation is happening when it isn't happening. But they, because of the immense amount of political reporting, combined with the cynicism that's promoted by so much of cable news and other political discourse, Voters are are on guard for politicians saying what they think they want people to hear. And so we've ended up in the Democratic Party with a primary uh, that is between uh, two people who have been in the public eye for a very long time, who have records that they could be held accountable to, uh, that have a history uh, of relationships and voters want to feel like they know these candidates and like they've been able to get a window into these candidates that hasn't been uh, curated, that isn't just for the moment. That And that's just a, a, a big piece of what we're seeing here. Now, you talk about each of the individual candidates, and I think there are more specific problems with their campaigns, but... But that's that's really, I, I think, a, a leading factor of, of what's going on here, especially when you're talking about going up against Trump. Democratic voters wanna wanna be able to trust who they're who they're supporting, and so and so that that's been, I think, a, a key factor in uh, Joe Biden's rise. Now, uh, there are. As we head into Super Tuesday, and we're going to talk with our guest, uh, Matthew Sittman, who's an associate editor at Commonweal, uh, who's a, a Bernie supporter. He's a brilliant guy. He, he, he um, has a podcast, Know Your Enemy, uh, where they talk about conservative 
uh, political thought. And it's it's a it's a really really well done podcast. I, I've enjoyed listening to to quite a bit of it. Uh, and so we're going to talk with Sitman about about some of sort of Super Tuesday. More specifically, to be honest, I felt a little. I raised some questions about Bernie's candidacy that I wasn't pre- prepared to answer for Bernie. Um, now Matthew's not a a surrogate of the Sanders campaign, but. I thought it would be helpful and, and, and fair and, you know, hopefully illuminating, um, to, to have Matthew on the show so we could, we could talk about some of the questions I raised in the last episode and just talk about why, um, more of the nature of the support Bernie, uh, is, is drawing. But look, as we head into Super Tuesday, you know, we we could talk state by state. We're we're not we're not going to do that. It, it it looks like Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren are staying in the race. A lot of attention will be on whether they win their home states, and it could end up being better for Biden and harmful for Bernie that they do stay in the race to win win those states and keep those delegates from from going to uh, going to Bernie. Mike Bloomberg is obviously still in the race spending money where Joe Biden cannot spend money because he, he, he didn't have it until <laughs> like today. <laughs> uh, they raised $5 million on Saturday on the day of the South Carolina primary. I expect with Buttigieg dropping out, a lot of uh, uh, Buttigieg's uh, funders will be throwing their support behind Biden. Um, and again, we'll talk about Buttigieg a, a bit more, but you know, I think the conventional wisdom here is basically, basically right, which is Biden has to perform really well in the South, states that match or um, look more similar to South Carolina's electorate. He needs to meet the threshold in California of 15%. And it would be nice if Texas, uh, Biden was able to perform well there. Uh, Steve Kornacki was playing with the numbers. He has Biden's best case scenario of coming out of Super Tuesday down about 70 delegates. That seems reasonable to me based on the numbers that we currently have. But I will say this. We're not going to have any good numbers heading into Tuesday that account for what happened in South Carolina. And in some ways... I think the polling numbers for Biden in these Super Tuesday states are something of a floor. Now, of course, like uh, the Biden campaign doesn't want to say this. They want to keep expectations reasonable. They don't want uh, 100 or 150 delegate lead to be seen as a, a huge deal because that's still a very likely scenario. But Biden's riding hot right now, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him perform better on Super Tuesday uh, than, than people seem to think he will. People want to, people don't want to waste their votes. They don't, they don't want to throw them away. They want to, they want to back a winner. And if they don't think Bernie can win in the general, or if they just don't like Bernie's politics. I think we're going to see some attrition from Bloomberg's sort of high of you know, 20 percentage points in some of these, some of these states. And so, so that's something to watch out for. All right. The last topic I want to cover before we, before we move to the interview is uh, Pete Buttigieg. And I, I'm actually sitting here, I'm recording this on Sunday night and watching 
uh, Chasten uh, deliver the opening comments before people to judge walks on stage for uh, to suspend his campaign. And it's worth just discussing Mayor Pete's campaign just one more time, particularly uh, from a faith lens, through a faith lens. It is unquestionable in my mind that Pete's willingness to speak so directly to faith was a major part of his rise, his his his, his rise into the um, into sort of being viewed as a viable candidate tracks with the major pickup his remarks about faith got at several CNN town halls and similar events. I, I, I've said this on the show before. Where he failed, in my view, was an inability uh, or an unwillingness to, f- to find some sort of substantive way to reach out to conservative and and heterodox Democrats. And, and to be clear, it's not just about picking up those votes. It's his whole message, especially in the closing months of this campaign, was about unity, bringing people together, being able to reach people that no one else could reach. And yet his policy proposals showed very little ability to do that. Now, I do want to affirm if if, well, if his policy positions reflected what he really thought, I'm not saying you make up policy stances in order, like I, I want candidates to run on what they believe. What I'm saying is that the rhetoric didn't necessarily, the, the, the substance didn't match the promises that he was making in terms of what kind of outreach uh, he, he'd be able to, uh, he'd be able to accomplish. So, you know, he he's suspended his campaign. He obviously has a, a long future in politics if he wants it, though it's unclear where he goes from here. He certainly has all the tools, not just to be a successful politician, but look, you you watch the last few minutes of, of his uh, concession speech uh, that, that just just wrapped up. And yes, I, I did pause recording this so that I could watch a concession speech in case he made an endorsement so that we could talk about the endorsement. Uh, but you watch the last few minutes of that concession speech and you go, wow, here's someone who's thought pretty deeply about faith, thought pretty deeply about politics as a vocation. And I think it has a, has a vision for the role that politics should play in Americans' lives is a lot healthier than what we have now. So I, I hope that he continues to deepen his thinking. I hope that he continues to develop a view of uh, politics that is not operating within the paradigm of just the Democratic Party, but that he find some way to to break through partisanship with not just his rhetoric, but with with his policies. But I do want to say kudos to the Buttigieg campaign, especially on this podcast. On on the Faith 2020 podcast, Buttigieg is the only staffer that has national staff whose sole responsibility is faith until Bloomberg jumped in. And then he was showing up at everywhere from the Poor People's Campaign he was in Selma uh, this morning. 
He was talking to people that he he knew not going to vote for him. And that's everything from going to black churches in South Carolina to doing a uh, doing an interview with Mike Gerson, which is the closest we've seen in this primary to the kind of outreach that I think is going to be necessary to win the general. And Pete Buttigieg did it. He said some things that I've disagreed with, especially earlier in this campaign. I do think we've seen him uh, regarding faith. Uh, I, I think folks who have listened know that I, I, I soured generally on his candidacy over the last four or five months. Uh, but on, on faith, he actually improved. That's kind of the paradox of it. We saw from April or May of last year where he was, I think, still experimenting and thinking out loud a bit about just what he wanted to say about the intersection of faith and politics to the point where he'd gotten his, his messaging right, which is not to say that I agreed with all of it, but he, he was consistent. I think he was uh, not making the mistake of, uh, of you know, suggesting that being a Christian means that you'll be a Democrat. I, I think he, he got much better at sort of being, being careful uh, uh, around, around that. And so the, the, the last thing I want to talk about regarding Buttigieg, and really the last topic before we head into this interview, is, you know, Mayor Pete is, uh, there's reporting that he's talking with the Biden campaign about how to consolidate support. Now, you know, you would hope that that wouldn't be reported if that was only coming from the Biden campaign and not from the Buttigieg folks as well. But, you know, do just want to be careful about about that. I, I tweeted when when the news that Buttigieg would be suspending his campaign came out that, you know, I don't think it's completely straightforward for him in terms of an, a choice regarding endorsement. Uh, his his campaign was so calibrated to sort of thread the rhetorical space between and in rejection to Sanders, Biden, Warren. And so, you know, I can make a case that a, a Bernie endorsement, you know, or a Warren endorsement makes sense. Uh, but here's, here's why I think the strongest argument is for Biden. The, the, the first is that he would actually bring something to Biden that Biden needs. If, if Buttigieg endorsed Warren, it would be doubling down on sort of liberal, white, highly educated voters, which, you know, might help consolidate that behind Warren. But A, Warren seems to, uh, the bottom is falling falling out for Warren, A. And then B, you know, that's just not much value politically to, to Buttigieg. Uh, he could endorse Sanders on the idea that it's Buttigieg and Sanders who have performed really well among among young voters. But, you know, first, I think a Buttigieg endorsement would make some of Bernie's folks a little nervous <laughs> that Bernie, uh, you know, is, is sort of making concessions. And I don't know how much that concern would be there, but, you know, it's, it's worth noting. And, and then sort of the same thing is, as it's not clear what kind of role Buttigieg would have there. But with Biden, 
you know, everyone gets something. Uh, Biden gets affirmation from and support of a, a candidate who's done well among young voters and and liberal, uh, highly educated white folks, uh, where Biden has not done uh, so well. Uh, Buttigieg is able to back the candidate with the support among the demographic that hurt him the most during this race. I mean, if Buttigieg still harbors presidential ambitions, which it seems pretty clear that Buttigieg has, has wanted to be president for uh, a very long time, uh, you know, the task number one is making sure that he doesn't start off, that he takes care of the question around his weakness with black voters before before he runs again. I mean, he can't get into another race with this narrative still being the way it is. Uh, and so, you know, what one way to to do that is to say, like, look, I've I've listened to the voices of black voters in this country that that has influenced my decision to endorse Biden, and that is something that could carry weight. In addition to, of course, Buttigieg's, you know. Uh, volunteer work in support of Barack Obama, you could see that making some sense. It's not a perfect fit. Buttigieg ran on sort of a new era and the fact that because he's so young, he sees things like no one else could see them. And, you know, to to then throw your weight behind Biden is going to take a, a little bit of explaining. But I think it's, uh, I think Buttigieg is, as we've said on this show before, nimble enough, and he's certainly that to find a way, find a way to do that. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if Buttigieg makes an endorsement as early as tomorrow, ahead of Super Tuesday, or if there's a case to be made that it would be better to let Super Tuesday play out, and Buttigieg's endorsement could either soften uh, soften the blow of a Super Tuesday that's really does goes really well for Bernie or, you know, to, to really keep up momentum and really put the pressure on Bernie. So folks, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with, with, with all of this. Super Tuesday is, you know, I was thinking, I, I do think there's something we've had so many debates. We had time in between Iowa for a debate before New Hampshire in between uh, New Hampshire and Nevada for a debate in Nevada. And, you know, there is something to be said at this point that the voter should just be allowed to have their say without sort of candidates having another night of debates where you have people trying to maintain or become relevant again based on recent, you know, election outcomes by taking, you know, throwing strategic Hail Marys. I, I I think we've seen enough at this point. This field needs to get uh, winnowed, and let's get to uh, let's get past Super Tuesday. We'll have a debate in the middle of March, hopefully with a field that is uh, uh, two or three, four people max. Let's see if we could let's see if we could do that, and hopefully the DNC's. Uh, rules will facilitate that if if the candidates themselves won't, uh, because that's a dynamic that needs to change. Uh, we need to be able to get to more questions. Voters need to be able to hear from the candidates in a more extended way without people 
eight candidates trying to talk over one another. And, and that's where this race needs to go next after Tuesday. All right, when we get back, we're going to have a conversation with Matt Matthew Sittman. And I'm, I'm excited to, to have him on the show. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about Matthew after the break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. This week, we have Matthew Sittman, who is an associate editor at Commonweal. He's a native of central Pennsylvania. He was educated at Grove City College, where a lot of my friends from Buffalo, New York, went to great music program at Grove City. Uh, And uh, Matthew pursued doctoral studies in political theory at Georgetown University. He taught in the uh, politics department at uh, the University of Virginia, one of the best politics departments in the country, in my view. He served as literary editor of the popular news and culture website, The Dish. Matthew lives in New York. He is really vibrant thinker. One of those folks that you just know is going to be around for a while, like a Christine Emba, like a Liz Brunig. Uh, folks that are just going to be a, a, you know, someone I consider a friend, but, you know, for more broadly than that, you know, someone that's just going to be a joy to, to see, um, to see their voices grow and develop. And, you know, he's, he's someone that I found worth tracking sort of intellectually uh, for, for a long time. And so here's a conversation about heading into Super Tuesday, about support for Bernie and the disruption that Donald Trump has provoked in our national politics. This is my conversation with Matthew Sittman on the Faith 2020 podcast. Well, Matthew, thanks for joining us uh, on the Faith 2020 podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's uh, We've been sort of talking uh, about having you on for a long time and glad that we could we could make it happen i think now is uh, uh probably a, a a really good time to to have this conversation i think so too uh there's a lot of interesting things going on regarding <laughs> yes. faith in 2020 indeed indeed so i just sort of open it up would love your view you know the state of the race we're at a obviously a a pivotal moment bernie sanders is a front runner with clear advantages. I was going to say a clear front runner. You know, I think that was certainly true before South Carolina and would love your thoughts on sort of how South Carolina changes, changes things from your perspective. But yeah, heading into Super Tuesday, just how are you, what, what's your view of this thing? Well, to jump off from, I think what you were intimating there, if you had asked me even a week or so ago, I would have felt, much more confident that uh, Bernie was the front runner. Uh, I think, you know, what's happened in the last week or two weeks is Bloomberg really did bomb that first debate he was in before Nevada. He did a little bit better, I think, before the South Carolina primary, although it was a little hard to tell given how pro Bloomberg the audience was, (laughs) right? It was, you know, when Elizabeth Warren would go after him, it was a little hard to you know, know how that would play with the audience because some in the crowd were actually booing. But between that and then Biden, I think his bigger than expected win yesterday uh, or Saturday, we're recording this Monday morning. And then uh, with former mayor Pete Buttigieg dropping out, those, those, that kind of trifecta, Bloomberg being weaker than I maybe thought he would be, 
Biden's really um, strong win in South Carolina on Saturday, and then Mayor Pete dropping out, which I assume will at least to some degree help Biden. I think that's put things into flux, and I'm not quite sure what to think. Um, partly because Bernie does have a lot of money. I think he has a really strong organization in a lot of the Super Tuesday states. And it's not clear how, you know, a win on Saturday for Biden will, you know, what how much can happen in the intervening days, because it's just a few days between the South Carolina primary and Super Tuesday. So I don't know. I'm feeling a little out of sorts, actually. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the dynamics here is, you know, I feel with both Nevada and South Carolina, there's a there's a question uh, about whether Biden performed so well in South Carolina and Bernie performed so well in Nevada because of the demographics of the state or because of the organization and effort and relationships they they had in the state. Uh, and and you know, is it does Bernie have this sort of transcendent relationship with Latino voters? Does Biden have a transferable relationship with black voters that, um, and, and I guess what I mean is not just like, will they win among those categories, but will they trounce, <laughs> you know, will, will they, and, and we just, we just don't know. Like, like is South Carolina because Biden has been, uh, because he had the Clyburn endorsement because Biden's been traveling to the state, uh, you know, uh, so consistently, or is or are these? Uh, will this sort of demographic map layer over when we, you know, on Tuesday when you know Alabama, Virginia, um, uh, when some of these states are voting for Sanders, you know, Colorado, pretty pretty significant states. Well, I would say two things. One is I I believe I read a, a it was from the maybe the exit polls that the Clyburn endorsement, something like 50% of voters in South Carolina said that mattered to their final decision. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That, so that might've actually played a bigger role than even though it came sort of at the last minute, right? Wednesday morning after the, after the debate before South Carolina. So that may have had more of an influence than, than we might've guessed at the start. Yeah. But I will say that the Sanders campaign seems to be very intentionally reaching out to, Hispanic and Latinx voters. That's right. And and so I wouldn't be surprised if he continued to do very well, especially with younger Hispanic voters. But I'm not sure, you know, different, there are different contexts even to, you know, the dynamic in Nevada. I mean, that's a peculiar state in some ways, right? Right. The, the, the place of unions and in a place like Las Vegas. And so I don't know. I just don't know how it will play out. I know that's not what you're supposed to say. I'm supposed to have a <laughs> clever, tidy answer to everything, but it just does seem very fluid to me right now. And uh, yeah, I'm just not sure how, again, some maybe some people dropping out or if the race consolidates. I do want to strike a note of kind of, I'm really tired of the pundit line that there's a moderate lane and you can add up every vote that Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, et cetera, have gotten and think that they'll all get behind a quote unquote moderate candidate. I mean, we know Bernie has the the highest favorable ratings uh, among Democrats of candidates right now in the race. 
And we also know that some of those moderate voters will go to Bernie. You know, uh, I think the categories we use don't often get at the complexity and kind of cross-cutting forces at work in voters. So, uh, yeah, that's the, I did want to make that point. No, and, and I kind of want to go back to this discussion, but before we go like too much, uh, too much further, sure, I'd love to just. Uh, so, so I've been I've been reading uh, David Garrow's uh, "Bearing the Cross," uh, Garrow's uh, history of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and uh, Commonweal came, came up, uh, <laughs> and, and you know it's kind of this incredible institution. Uh, would love to. Would love for you to just talk a little bit about your your role there, what Commonweal is, and yeah, just talk about the tradition of of, of that publication a little bit. Sure. Uh, so Commonweal was founded in 1924, uh, so we're you know approaching, I think you know our 96th birthday, so to speak. Uh, so we've you been around a long the time. Democratic nomination, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was cheap. It was a I know. cheap joke. Yeah. That's all right. Um, <laughs> and I would say the distinctive elements of what Commonweal has always been about is that um, one, we've always been edited by lay people. So there's no ecclesiastical control, or you know, no bishop can tell us not to say this or that, and that's given us a lot of freedom to, you know, sometimes push for reform in the church, or at least open up debates that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't sort of dominated by the hierarchy of the church. Um, let lay people express themselves and make arguments. And, and also, Commonweal's always, you might call us liberal Catholics. And I just want to say that word, you know, there's liberal in the sense that we use it in day-to-day politics now, you know, left of center. Um, and I think that does apply to us for the most part but also liberal in the sense of how, how religious faith relates to liberal democracy. Um, one of the early debates that almost tore the magazine apart was whether to support Franco or not in the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> and we were the only publication that in the final, you know, our, the magazine's position shifted and there were internal debates, but at the end of the day, we stayed neutral in that, uh, in that conflict. But we were the only... Catholic publication not to back Franco then, finally, in the United States. So that's just to say, you know, we were founded at a time when the Catholic Church was still a little more enthralled to kind of old Europe thrown in altar politics. And we've always been concerned with the way faith can sort of enliven public debates and work and be a part of working for the common good in a modern, liberal, democratic, pluralistic society. That's really helpful context and kind of want to take that and go into your conversation about sort of the moderate conservative lane, which is, you know, I think one of the significant sort of surprise. And I think Super Tuesday will give us more data to to see how, how real this is. But pretty much in the first four primary states, uh, primary caucus states, uh, Senator Sanders has been pulling 20 to 25 percent of, of uh, self-identified moderates and conservatives. The Washington Examiner, I don't know if you saw this story last week, but did a story about uh, traditional uh, traditional Catholics who are uh, who are supporting Bernie. And I thought it was a, a super yeah. interesting, super interesting story. Uh 
Yeah, I didn't read it. I saw it, and I but I know. I think, and I probably am friends on Twitter with some of the people profiled in that piece. Is my guess. I haven't read <laughs> right. it yet. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I guess, and, and one more bit of context, which is, sure. you know, one reason I wanted to have you on th- this episode is uh, in the last episode, and you know me, I'm a pretty like ironic guy. Uh, so you are, again, yes. I go in on on Bernie, but I I did raise some some questions and I'm going to ask you specifically about some of those but but I really wanted to have you on as um as someone who could help my audience sort of understand in in a way frankly better than I could support for Bernie um uh-huh. and so tell tell us a little bit about what you think the appeal of Bernie is in, in this in this moment uh, f- first and and then second, you know why that appeal is, is so um, se- seems to seems to span and transcend some of our political categories. Sure. Well, I'll just say, I mean, the source of Bernie's appeal for me is, I guess, I mean, I'm I'm someone very much drawn to his economic message. Um, I don't, I would call myself a democratic socialist. I don't shy away from that label. So I think political economy is sort of the constellation of issues that determines my vote the most. And as a Catholic, I actually think Bernie's political and economic views, uh, his economic views align very closely with Catholic social teaching. Um, I wouldn't want to say necessarily that Bernie's positions are the of course, the only way you can translate Catholic social teaching into a you know, public policy program or a, a political agenda. But I think it's very close. Um, and I would say, too, that um, part of Bernie's appeal, and maybe why he does better with moderates than people might sometimes expect, is, as I intimated earlier, I think, you know, what is a moderate? Um, is someone with pretty liberal economic views, but socially conservative views, are they a moderate? Um, are the are people who are more socially liberal, but economically conservative, are they moderates? You know, um, it's not clear. Are they people with just kind of moderate views down the line? You know, they kind of take a split the difference position on everything. Is that a moderate? It's not clear. So I think Bernie appeals to some people because as we know, there's that quadrant in American politics of people who are socially conservative, but economically more progressive or liberal minded. And they're not really well served by either party right now. And I think Bernie appeals to some of them because they think, listen, um, you know, I've been, I, maybe I'm pro-life, but am I going to vote for a Republican candidate like Trump, who's so manifestly kind of an affront to a culture of life in some ways, even if they might agree with some of the, you know, personnel decisions he makes or, or uh, policies he signed or supports, you know, um, and they say, well, someone like Bernie, uh, he, he is right on a lot of other things I care about. And he seems to be a man of integrity and honesty. He's held these views for 40 years. Um, you know, and they say, well, in this particular set of circumstances, I'll go for Bernie. And I think that's, that's, partly my position. And if I could make a pitch to your pro-life uh, listeners, 
you know, I really think it is an open question whether or not someone like Bernie's policies that include, you know, uh, paid uh, maternal leave or parental leave, universal child care, um, his strong position on, say, a living wage, on, you know, his support for labor. And I was just talking about this with E.J. Dionne the other day, and he recalled a story that former Senator Bob Kerry told, you know, where he said, listen, there's two, two women who are pregnant. One has a good union job who knows she'll have employment after she's, you know, had her, had her child, uh, who knows she'll have uh, maternity leave, so on and so forth, versus someone who, you know, if they're not sure if they'll get that job back after they step away from it to have their child. Uh, they might not have the protections or uh, child care opportunities that this other person had. And so which one of those two scenarios is someone more likely to choose life? Like there's a real political economic dimension to, to some of these, uh, you know, social issues that, that a lot of Christians are concerned about. And, uh, you know, I think one way of approaching it is to say, do you want to make it harder to have an abortion or easier to have a baby? And I think in those terms, you know, even some social conservatives might view Bernie's economic message as a way to have a more stable society that makes it easier for parents and families to build a life together, bring children into the world and raise them with a modicum of stability and dignity. Yeah. You know, so, so, so for me, the political, Bernie's political economic message is really at the heart of it. And I think it actually, that spills over into a lot of different issues. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you, but kind of for the rest of our conversation, kind of two or three questions related to what you, what you raised and kind of the, the first, and if, if I was honest, I'd say this would, this is probably at the core of my discomfort um, with, with Bernie. And it's the sense that his candidacy relies on, uh, to a certain extent, it certainly views as um, uh, as as an aid the spirit of like disruption uh, that Trump has brought about. The, the, this idea that that Trump is a moment to take advantage of, um, and sort of the anxiety and. Um, uh, chaos that Trump has brought about is is what is what sort of makes Bernie possible. Like, gosh, things are so things are so bad. We we truly need radical radical change. And then related to that idea, uh, you know, is just the the political calculation that yes, like voters uh, probably uh, if 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 we had a uh, a president, and you may disagree with us, and I could I could imagine arguments uh, uh, that that would disagree with us. But but if we had a president, Jeb Bush, um, an establishment Republican, a president Mitt Romney, that there there would not be the political will for a president Bernie uh, Sanders, and there may not be that political will among the public now. But hey, it's it's at least worth worth the shot. So just speak to this, speak to the sort of idea that sort of the advance of democratic socialism relies on uh, 
relies on an anxious, embattled electorate that has has lost all hope. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I think there's maybe two ways of looking at that. One is, as you put it, to try to kind of seize the moment, right? This moment of uncertainty, this moment of discontent, the fact that Trump is in office, sort of like, well, maybe we can sneak through a democratic socialist. I would sort of take a different view, which is that Bernie's support, and everyone knows this, but it really does come overwhelmingly from the young. I mean, his numbers with young voters, it's really shocking to see just how much better he does with young voters than anyone else in the Democratic Party. It's not even close. And I think you can look at that and do something interesting diagnostically with it, which is that I think maybe some of these younger voters are a kind of canary in the coal mine, that there are big structural problems, to quote another (laughs) of our candidates, um, with the economy, that it's not working for people. And it's not just that, oh, we're in an economic downturn or, you know, there's this some financial setback that's causing it because no, I mean, we know the numbers that by which we tend to measure the economy and employment's low. Um, you know, I know the stock market's taken a hit because of the coronavirus situation, but you know, the economy was doing pretty well, but there's still discontent. Why is that? And it's because the economy's not working for working families and young people who are coming out of college with debt and poor job prospects. So I think really it shouldn't be seen as Bernie trying to seize advantage of a moment of disruption, but rather that things are really, really broken in this country. A lot of people are suffering and struggling. And Bernie speaks to that with clear, direct moral language that he's going to take on the forces of greed and injustice that are too too much influence in our political and economic system. And when he says things like, you shouldn't go bankrupt if you get cancer. Um, you know, it's even when he says the idea of a deductible is absurd. Right. Yep. You know, I think that resonates with a lot of people. Uh, I mean, the number of people, I'm 38, the number of people around my age and a bit younger who, the horrific stories with their health care uh, providers and health insurance, uh, you know, everyone seems to be in this somewhat precarious economic situation. I, I think Bernie's responding to something quite real. And I think the dynamics that have propelled a lot of the interest in his candidacy are only going to continue. And it's why you see even people on the right now, someone like Josh Hawley or Marco Rubio, who I take a pretty dim view of what they're doing. But sure. even on the right, you know, they're abandoning they're the economic libertarianism yeah. and trying to tap into something that's more pro-worker and that isn't just taking the typical libertarian line on economics so I, I guess that's just one general way of responding to your question, which is, again, that I think Bernie Sanders, it's not him trying to take advantage of, again, a moment of disruption or uncertainty, but rather because things have already been disrupted, because things are already so broken, people are looking for different answers. And I think he provides, provides that. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, Something I touched on in the last episode, I I do think our politics is moving, for a lot of the reasons you just named, our politics is is moving beyond sort of the 
the central sort of crux of our political debate being, you know, big government or small government. Uh, I, I think that we're, we're now in a, a new sort of era of, of our political debate. I will say, though, there's a sense that, that uh, I feel Bernie could return us uh, to those arguments because of I don't think there's been like full contemplation and understanding of not just like the difficulties of of really changing how our economy works and and expanding the role of government to the extent that Bernie uh, is proposing, uh, but. I mean, Matthew, we we sort of were walking through this together through different perspectives. I mean, with the ACA, which was, you know, in my view, an important, but, uh, you know, certainly compared to Medicare for all, a a sort of marginal uh, expansion of government into uh, Americans' health care, even that resulted in uh, now a decade of court cases. Uh, resulted in the ACA almost didn't pass, as you remember. Not as many people thought uh, it wasn't after the horse trading and after sort of the pay-fors were taken care of. It was the question of funding for abortion that almost killed the ACA. The extent to which if Bernie's plans went through under a, a vision of the intersection of, well, let's just say like religious freedom, uh, a vision of a very liberal vision of how government should deal with sort of moral matters. I think it's really hard to fathom the extent to which Americans' lives would change, I think in some ways for the better. But like stick with me here on like the, uh, you know, Medicare for all would do away with if it passed under Bernie's plan, would do away with whether private insurance could fund abortion because under Medicare for all, everyone would be covered by a single payer and that single payer would be paying for abortion under Bernie's plan. And so, you know, it's like the contraception mandate caused a decade of social strife that we're still in the middle of, uh, Fortnite for freedom on, on your side of things. So, so, so speak a bit to like, do you think the extent to which government would play a role? And it's weird for me to be on the other side of this debate because I spend most of my time, you know, uh, arguing with more conservative folks about, you know, the fact that, you know, it's okay for the government to be uh, helping uh, uh, feed hungry people um, uh, and uh, responding to arguments that the church should be responsible for all social service. But but now we're kind of facing th- this real possibility of um, a kind of European style expansion of uh, government being the center of social service provision in this country. So talk, talk a little bit about how that expansion of government sort of will will meet with still a very religious population, a population that's that's used to having a level of independence from government and ability to arrange its its life and its local communities in a way that I think a Bernie presidency, if if he was successful, you know, would affect quite a bit. Well, I would say first of all that I just simply believe in Medicare for all as a kind of healthcare policy. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the talking points against it just don't really add up. For example, the idea that, okay, 
we're going to take away your choice under Medicare for all. Well, you know, what choice do people really have now? I know personally, uh, my health care through my employer, Commonweal, it's changed every year I've worked at Commonweal. Right. You know, it's not like uh, these private insurance plans or uh, health care through your uh, employer. It's not like these are stable really great policies and, and plans that everyone loves. That's not the and like And like ultra responsive to the consumer. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Yes, yeah. yes. So I think like as a matter of principle, healthcare is a human right. And I actually think the most cost-effective uh, and, uh, and sort of rational way to approach it is through something like Medicare for All. Um, now, and I would say too, since you mentioned the ACA, I do wonder... Uh, so I don't know, Michael, if you support a public option or not, something like maybe Biden's plan or something like Pete Buttigieg's plan. But, you know, I, I even wonder sometimes is the best way to get there through starting with your compromise position or starting with something like Medicare for all? You know, I think for a long time, the Democratic Party has tacked right on these issues. You know, it's been a, a state of PTSD since the Reagan revolution. Hmm. and and. It's too often that takes the form, not, I, I'm not against all forms of compromise in politics, and neither is Bernie. He voted for the ACA. Um, but the question is, how do you get the best results? Uh, how do you kind of win the most you can? And I don't think it's by starting with a compromise position. I think you have to kind of think imaginatively, have a real vision of what a just and fair healthcare system would look like. And that's what you start with. And it's not clear at all either why, you know, the Republicans aren't going to vote for anything along these lines. We know that right, there's, right. you know, so all the interesting debates about these matters are happening in essence within the Democratic Party. And that's almost unfair to Democrats have have to contain within themselves all the substantive policy debates about health care. Right. Because it's not happening on the Republican side. Now, when it comes to some of the particular issues you raise, like abortion. You know, uh, first of all, I'm not sure, uh, or, or or religious liberty concerns in general. Yeah, that jump in, right? So, like, um, so like we we could even we could even zoom out. Like, let's just take like the general the general matter of uh, when when there is a uh, now a near democratic consensus. Uh, uh, there's a near consensus on the Democratic Party. That when federal money is involved, it it greatly expands the capacity of what government can uh, require, and like raises the level of burden for like complicity uh, on on the government's behalf of like what are they sure. legitimizing and supporting, and so like what you know what happens if the um, if the government if the federal government triples in size, then then the the reach of that sort of idea is able to go much deeper into Americans' lives, whether it's on abortion or religious freedom or other sort of the uh, other sort of matters that may not fall so neatly along, you know, left-right lines. Sure. Uh, I mean, partly I think that's a matter of when it actually comes time to write legislation to try to hash out those debates in the best way you can in those contexts. I know that's sort of punting, but I think one, you know, one thing about deciding things through legislative action and debate rather than having the courts decide them 
is that you can actually engage in some give and take, right? And I don't know where exactly the fault lines would lie or what the best answer is for some of these situations. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a debate worth having. Yeah, Matthew, I I appreciate that. Last sort of just idea I want to, I want to raise is this idea I felt has been sort of a driving factor in this whole campaign, which is that in the Trump era, voters are considering authenticity differently. Voters have become less focused on the performance of politics, or perhaps I think a a little um, more aware that they're able to be swayed by the performance of politics. And so authenticity has come through with, you know, we now have a Democratic primary that is basically down to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who are two people, I think differently, but have sort of proven what they believe through history, (laughs) through long Mm -hmm. careers in public service, in a way that voters, I think, feel like like they cannot be manipulated. Like over the last you know forty years, I've gotten some windows into who these candidates really are in a way that I can never get with Mayor Pete. Like 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 sure. maybe <laughs> may, maybe everything that Pete presented on the trail is like the real you know the real maybe, Mayor Pete. But I am skeptical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm a little skeptical on that, <laughs> and I think voters were too. I think it yeah. was a big challenge for Cory Booker. I think it was a big challenge for for uh, for Beto. Um, but with Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, there was this sense: uh, yeah, there might be some disagreements, but um, but but uh, I want to know who's going up against Trump, and I, and mm-hmm. and I want there to be consistency there. And so, uh, yeah, I guess my my last question is just you, you know. S- Speak to that, and, and I guess give us a give us a sense of where where you think Bernie's candidacy is 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 going to go from here. Obviously, we're going to have a clear picture after Super Tuesday, but um, what what does a matchup with Donald Trump look like? Uh, you know, for you. <laughs> oh wow. Um, well, I do think Bernie's authenticity, to use that word, is a part of his appeal, um, and I think it does come from the fact that he's been pretty consistent over his 40 years in public life. Um, he's, and he's done that as mayor Pete himself pointed out in that essay he wrote as a senior in high school, um, that it took courage. It takes, you know, it took courage for Bernie to take some of the positions he's taken to stick by the label democratic socialist. You know, it seems like more that the world has turned Bernie's way and that Bernie has adjusted himself to, you know, some particular moment right. in our political life. The man's met the moment more than adapted himself to it. And I think that is something that will help him if, it, if he's the nominee against Donald Trump. I think, you know, my parents, for example, they're Republicans. They're pretty conservative Republicans. But they always say nice things about Bernie. Now they might know that their son is a you know into Bernie, and this is you know, intra-family uh, diplomacy. But they but they they say things like, "Well, he just seems honest," you know. And I was talking to my dad on the phone yesterday, and he said, "You know, um, one thing's for sure: Bernie doesn't spend uh, all his campaign money on suits and haircuts." <laughs> you know, but he meant yeah. it like that there was something real about Bernie, that he was his right. own man. 
uh, and that there was something unaffected and and just real mm. about him. Yeah, and yeah. and I think that will go that will actually contrast nicely with Trump. And I think if you're asking me what I what this might look like, I've thought a lot about how different candidates would appear alongside Trump on a debate stage. And I actually think Bernie would have this gruff sort of brush off Trump's more ludicrous and crude <laughs> comments and just stay relentlessly on message. Yeah. And it's not very appealing yeah, yeah. to we pundits because we watch all the debates. So we hear Bernie say the same lines over and over again. Yep. But most people don't follow politics that way. And so Bernie's really good. If you only see him once, you will hear the core things he wants to do for you as president. Yeah. Um, and I do think he can go into some of these states in the Midwest where Hillary Clinton struggled and, and do well. I think his economic message plays well, but I also think he just has such a longstanding record of standing with workers. Uh, he, as he told Mayor Pete, he has more union support than you could ever dream of, uh, <laughs> a line I liked. You know, I think, I, think, I think you know one way of viewing it is that negative polarization, negative partisanship is so strong. I do think one case for Bernie would be something like, Democrats are going to come home. At the end of the day, they're going to come home. So who might be the candidate who can activate or appeal to uh, constituencies that sometimes are not as involved in the political process as we might hope, right? Young people, African-Americans, Hispanic voters, working people. You know, Bernie does well, I think, with especially younger voters of color, workers, and maybe that's what we need. Maybe that's actually how you get to those margins that put you over the top. As you say, that all the, all the regular voting Democrats will come home in November, and then we need someone who can excite parts, parts of the country, uh, type, different types of people who might not normally show up to vote. And I think that's, that's sort of uh, the case for Bernie, and I'm not sure it will happen. It's, I think all of us are very uh, reticent to make bold predictions. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to know what will happen. Um, I think, not to get too conspiratorial here, I don't know what Trump is going to do as the election approaches. Right. Yeah, right? Sure. We have a, a global pandemic possibly in the making, how that ripples through the economy, and how Trump, who's now totally seemingly unleashed, with a, with a, you know, now that he's survived impeachment or survived the Senate trial, and with Bill Barr doing his bidding, I don't know what's going to happen. I think it could be really chaotic in the months ahead. So <laughs> um, I'm sort of trying to vote my hopes rather than my fears and yeah. say, I really think Bernie has the programs and plans that would be best for our country. And so I'm, I'm, I'm all in for him right now. Yeah. Well, exactly what I wanted my, my uh, uh, listeners to, to hear. Really appreciate it. I want my listeners to also hear more from you. Uh, we've sort of been friends, at least over, you know, uh -huh. we followed each other's work and internet, it's friends. Been <laughs> internet friends. It's been such a gift to me. Where can, uh, where can folks follow your work, stay up with, 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 uh, with what you're, what you're doing? Uh, well, I'm an associate editor at Commonweal. So a lot of the pieces I edit and of course what I write appears at Commonweal. And uh, I also write pretty regularly for Descent Magazine. 
Um, but uh, in particular, some of your listeners, if they're looking for another podcast, uh, Commonweal, for about the last year and a half or so, we've had the Commonweal podcast. And just recently, for example, I, I actually mentioned this in our conversation. I, I chatted with E.J. Dion about his book on how moderates and progressives can unify to defeat Donald Trump. And so we have thoughtful conversations with people like E.J. Dion. We recently had um, Eliza Griswold, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and reporter yeah. on. And, uh, and uh, some of your listeners might know Gene McCarraher, the great uh, Villanova professor and kind of hero to a number of us Christian socialists out there. Yeah. So sure. those are the kind of guests we've had on. And so if any of your listeners want to check out the Commonweal podcast, uh, I wanted to plug it here. Hey, that's fantastic. I would urge urge folks to to check that out, uh, both uh, Matt's, uh, Matthew's writing uh, at Commonweal, but but the podcast as well. Uh, Matthew, can't thank you enough for, for doing this. Uh, we'll look forward to following you during Super Tuesday, and uh, we'll see where this race goes from here. Sure. When, Bernie, when Bernie's the nomination and I'm helping him with Catholic outreach, you can have me on again. All right. Is is that the plan? Okay. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> hey, apparently, according to the Washington <laughs> Examiner, there are quite a few people who will be lined up. <laughs> yes. I won't have trouble staffing up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, Matthew. All right. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matthew. What a what a great guy. There's nothing left to left to talk about or do before Super Tuesday. And so we'll see. I hope you have plans. You don't want to be. It's, it's good to watch those returns come in with some friends. So make a dinner, have some folks over, watch the returns come in. Uh, and then we'll we'll recap it all on the next episode of the Faith 2020 podcast. <laughs>